Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And every fortnight, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I'm joined by Andrew Brown of the Scottish architecture studio Brown & Brown that he co-founded with his wife just over 10 years ago. We discuss their most recent project, Lower Tullockcrew. The project is an extension and refurbishment of an historic house in the heart of the Cairngorms National Park with amazing views over the Spey Valley. The existing house is set on an outcrop and they have extended it with a black box that cantilevers out over the sloping landscape to create a covered area for the client's 1960s Ford Falcon. In the interview, we talk about the stunning location. I find out how the builder had a local disused quarry reopened so that they could use stone that matched the original house. And Andrew tells me how Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, has been used to create a secret door handle to a concealed downstairs toilet. If you'd like to find out more about Brown and Brown Architects and their project Lower Tullockcrew, you can find more information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. It's okay. Thanks very much for asking us. Um, we're looking forward to talking about um, your well, very recent project completed this year, Lower Tullock Crew, um, which thankfully you gave me a bit of an introduction before we started recording on the pronunciation. I hope I got it uh, got it correct. I, I, I think it was bang on. <laughs> bang on, good. Um, yeah, I mean, stunning project and located in the Cairngorms um, National Park. So not only a beautiful project, but in stunning scenery as well that we, we hopefully will be talking about a bit. Um, and it's also very close to, you were just telling me where your office is based. So you're also based in the National Park, right? Yeah, yeah we are. It's around, it's around an hour away from the office. So it's at the centre of the park and we, we are based towards the eastern edge of it. So it's... And this is a practice that you've you set up with your wife, Kate, 2010. So just sort of beyond celebrating 10 years of, of practice. Is um, as this being a kind of one of your most recent projects, how does this kind of sit now in, in terms of your growth to getting to this point and um, your journey as a practice? Yeah, it's a, an important project for us. I mean, we made the decision a few years ago that we were going to focus on uh, one-off domestic work we had completed a, our first public building that was uh, was quite well received you know it won a scottish sign award for best culture building and that kind of thing but we found out through that the type of work we really enjoyed actually and the type of work that we didn't really enjoy and uh, so we actually made a conscious effort to focus on trying to become good at a single type of work rather than getting onto that conveyor belt of ever increasing scale of project we actually thought that domestic uh, and one-off domestic in particular was something that we would spend the time to try to specialise in if we could. Yeah, that's interesting because, I, I mean, a lot of practices that I talk to, they often have become very good at doing housing, doing one-off domestic work, and that's their launch product. They want to get away from it because mm-hmm. I think a lot of architects probably view it as it's hard work, it's emotionally invested 
work um but you've done the opposite what what was the reason that that made you sort of turn away maybe more from the public work i think it was more that there's a nice scale at a certain type of domestic there's i mean both of our backgrounds were in larger commercial practices you know previously and i think that the thing about the one-off domestic is it's also that attachment to the client which is which is the thing that many architects quite accurately describe as hard work which is hard work of course but I think it's also rewarding as a result of that. And we quite enjoy that relationship with the client, really. It's also a little bit about creative freedom, actually, and being able to do projects of that scale, especially in some of the locations we get to work in, actually bring more design freedom than I think we find when we were starting to do non-domestic work. So we sometimes when we lecture or talk about it, we're talking about it perceived lack of ambition you know that people believe you'll get on the conveyor belt in small domestic large domestic small public uh, perhaps social you know and you'll work your way up uh, in inverted commas through the different types of, of project and we don't view it that way actually you know like it's i think there are so many different types of architects there's so many people that can specialize in different things that it's, it's about finding a niche that you're comfortable in and that you enjoy which almost by accident we found was one off domestic yeah and and how was that kind of almost by accident then you didn't set out them when you were setting up together no not really I, I, I mean I, i'd worked at a firm just before setting up that did a lot of that type of work and found out that i really enjoyed it you know but that had come about because it was a recession you know and, and i I had been made redundant twice from really well respected firms, but their work evaporated overnight. You know, mm. So I ended up working for a firm that did one off domestic stuff and is very good at it and very well known in Scotland. But and that and I was quite surprised to find how much I enjoyed that scale of work. But then when we started our firm, we we were almost on that conveyor belt again. It was small domestic and larger domestic and then you know we moved into doing that first public building. And whilst we enjoyed doing that, we found that it wasn't like it was really about creative freedom, I think, you know, in a way. And, and that thing of being able to work with a client, and it's quite nice to have a, a, a client that is slightly babe in the woods is the wrong phrase, you know, because we have clients that have done numerous jobs and they're very accomplished people. But I think yeah. that, but there's a certain joy that they take when you do a building for them as their home that they don't take if they're part of a commissioning body for a project mm-hmm. you know? and, and we really we really like that relationship we, we, we think it's it, it makes projects more enjoyable everyone is invested in it to the extent that we are you know yeah which is very satisfying i think and the creative freedom part is interesting because you know one of the things i've noticed on your website is you have a waiting list um and you give advice to people about plots of land so it's very much a niche of people are getting a plot of land and building a house on it is mm. it seems less so that it's converting and refurbishing existing buildings uh, it, it, it's partly both i would say i mean mm. we're, we're doing some really interesting refurbs and conversions just now and i mean obviously I, I, as you know a conversion of an extension could be an incredibly interesting thing and a new build house mm-hmm. could be an incredibly uninteresting thing and it's really mm-hmm. it's really just it's it's the the client and what their aspirations are is what kind of makes the difference between those things. But mm-hmm. I think that if someone approaches us early, maybe they don't have land or they're, they're looking or whatever, we're always happy to, to chat to them. And the earlier mm-hmm. you 
part of the process, even though it's time and it's time that isn't associated with a fee, and I understand all mm-hmm. that, but it's time well spent is the thing. Even if you give them advice mm-hmm. and nothing comes of it, and you know, it, it's it's something that when those jobs do come around, you know, it might be a year later, it might be two years later, it could be a week later, you know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that the process and the relationship and dynamic you have with the client is better for the fact that you have been able to help them earlier in the process. Mm. Well, that's the bit that, that I think was really interesting is that people come to you before they have their plot of land. So you're their first contact point. Um, what is it, do you think, that's that there's the demand that they just want what you're doing before they've even picked their location? What's the secret there? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure there is a secret. I think it's just that, from the first time we speak to people, we make it clear that, of course, we're a business, and, and you know, and things, and we have to, we have to act in such a way. But there's more to life than buying something for one pound and selling it for two. And I think the thing is that we'll spend the time to help people and invest time in it if it's worth doing. And, and there's no mention of a fee. There can be no mention of a fee for ages. You know, that the thing is that if you help people, then I think that 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 balances itself out over a project mm-hmm. and I think the fact that we are willing to understand and empathise with the situation that early in the process is when you're in that information gathering stage you know you, you want advice you're scared if you've never done it before you're worried about what it's going to cost is it open ended every time I approach a professional are they going to fleece me that kind of thing so mm-hmm. I think the thing about establishing a relationship that of course we're a business but the thing we're doing on every job is working in the best interest of the job you know, and, and yeah. it means hopefully it doesn't mean losing money on everything. You know, that, but if it means that we have to take a hit financially on a job to make that job better, it's a no-brainer, and we will always do it. Always do it. And the thing is that we we're well run, you know, and we understand how to run our business, and these things balance themselves out. You know, but I think yeah. if you have that commitment to how you want to approach it, and you can let a client see that right from the start, right from the kind of plot search bit. You, know, you understand that yes I could charge you for something but it's not actually a big investment of time but it might be a big help to you but always willing to do it because those people normally go on to become great clients that we have a great dynamic mm. with and the project balances out over you know the, over the length of it but I think that some of the people that we've helped in that way we're now doing job three or job four for you know that kind of thing so we're looking to kind of establish a relationship with clients yeah. How's that job three, job four? Is that third house, fourth house? How's that working? Uh, one of them <laughs> one of them we've done an extension and refurb of a Victorian villa. That was the first job, which went great, which we haven't photographed yet, but we are later this summer, which we're very excited about, actually. Yeah. And we've done we've done a refurb of an apartment for the same client. We've done uh, another home for the same client. And we uh, are now doing a little private spa and sauna for the same clients. Yeah. A tiny little job, but really yeah. interesting, you know. So, and, and that, that tends to be how we try to see if we're the right fit for a job is that it's not about size, you know, it's not about budget, yeah. you know, budget and aspiration linked perhaps, you know, that, but the smallest job we're doing is a £20,000 writing shed, you know, and the biggest yeah. one is. Well, I'm not really allowed to say, but it's a, you know, it's a kind of large house. And it's 
this twenty thousand pound writing shed is no less interesting, actually, in yeah. many ways. You know, so that tends to be how we try to select work. If we are, if we think we're a good fit for it, and we can genuinely give the client something, then it's yeah. then we try to make it work regardless of scale or, or location. Yeah, and that's all design led. You're clearly very passionate about wanting to do the right thing to create good architecture and to create good homes. Um, is it ever a case that then these there's people that um, you want to be helping, but you don't quite see that kind of creative agenda there. Is is that the sort of blocking point? Yeah, absolutely. I think that if there's not if there's not a creative agenda there, the question is whether they will really get the proper value from what you can give them. Because if there's that mm-hmm. tension, you know, and, and your intentions of the project don't match theirs, we tend to not do the job. Uh, even if that is a bad financial decision, we still don't do the job because the, yeah. the thing is that if, they, if you build it, they will come. You know, and if you do the right thing, then it will it will play out in the long run. So, no, I mean we, we've resigned actually from a job just recently where it seemed like a really good fit, and then while they were on the waiting list and we were speaking to them, it became obvious that it wasn't. It was going to be a very fraught relationship, and the. They were expecting things from us that were not what we had agreed, you know. And that, so, in the end, we resigned, uh, and, helped, and we helped them find another architect. Actually, yeah. which I think is the important part. You can't just cut people adrift, you know. So, uh, because it's not if it's not a good match, then it's it's you're not going to enjoy what you do. You're not going to give them any yeah. value. They're not going to be happy. You're probably going to lose money just as an adi flammy to the whole thing. So, I, I think that it's. I think that dynamic you have with the client is everything, you know, and, and you can have that dynamic in doing a tiny project and it'd be a wonderful thing to do, you know, and you can have the wrong dynamic on something that looks like a, a prestigious or lucrative project and it will not work out that way. The dynamic is yeah. So to someone who might be listening that's not an architect and um, maybe wouldn't understand what, you know, things like tension, creative yeah. agenda, client dynamic, what... What to you does that um, does that mean? What is it in terms of a creative agenda that sort of sparks your interest? And in, in... I think the thing is that if, if people have an understanding that they want to do something that will change how they live their life and improve it, and hopefully don't have to change how they live their life. Actually, perhaps fit how they live their life and be designed around how they wish to live their life. I think if people don't see the importance of that then I think that, that that can be where it can be slightly problematic because our whole agenda is to try to give them that. You know, so mm-hmm. so if they don't feel that's important and we're going to try to give it to them, then that creates a certain conflict, I suppose. You know, but if, if some I mean we have some clients that are very design focused and know exactly what they want and that, and that that's great. We're happy to work with them and draw that out further. And we have some clients, you know, who have no idea what they want and they come with a completely blank page mm. and and equally it's also fine to draw that yeah. out and I think our number one thing I mean when we were working recently with a marketing company and they asked us what we would describe as the number one thing we tried to communicate the clients was and I think it's empathy actually and mm. that we empathize with what they want to do you know we've been clients ourselves Kate and I you know and we've done projects and we understand how uh, fraught it could be and how stressful and how important it is to you and I think really being able to put yourself in the client's shoes, they're not just a means for you to create an architectural work. You know, yeah. you, you really are 
doing something that for them, particularly on a domestic scale, is incredibly important to them. And I think mm-hmm. being able to empathise with that instantly creates the right dynamic with them that they understand that we know what they're going through because we've been through it, you know. And, mm. um, and we also want them to not only enjoy the end, we want them to enjoy the process as well, if we can. Mm-hmm. You know, because many people, if, if they are lucky enough to get the opportunity to build a house, will probably only build one, most people. So if yeah. it's a process that you don't enjoy, that's a real wasted opportunity. You know, so. Yeah. So in terms of the the clients then on this project, um, how, you know, with what we've just been talking about, about this mm. process, this empathy, this starting early, maybe not even making money to start with, um, how did it work with, with these people? Uh, they actually approached us before they had bought the house, the existing house. And uh, when, excuse me, when the one half of the client went to view it with the estate agent, they asked us if we would go to. And we visited with them. And we kind of spoke about what was feasible, what wasn't feasible, etc. I mean, one half of the client actually trained as an architect. He uh, mm-hmm. did his, he went to Harvard and Yale, so both minor and major, I suppose, in architecture, which is quite interesting, you know. So you have a yeah. client that's got a really high design IQ, you know, and uh, which made for really, in- really interesting conversations. But also it's remarkable with that how much he didn't interject and didn't shape the process. I'm sure he was on mm. a, a more subtle level, but he obviously <laughs> didn't. He obviously didn't feel the the need to impose upon that, you know. So, which was really interesting. But you were always aware of it, of course. You know, yeah. But it's certainly not a lead client. And, yeah. Uh, so we, we went to see the house with them when they were looking at it. Talked about what the potential and possibilities might be, and really just helped them kind of cement that they were interested in, in buying the house, you know. It's an amazing spot, and it's uh, it's in an area near Aviemore in the Cairngorms called Rotty Muckus, which is in a, an estate, and it's a lovely area. It's full of tourists in the summer because it's so beautiful, you know. And yeah. Getting property out there is not the easiest thing, actually, so you have to move very quickly when you see something. So we were happy to kind of advise them as, as best as we could. You know, because it's uh, if that's slipped past them, I'm not sure anything that fits their requirements in that area has come up since either. You know, really? So, yeah. Uh, so it was, it was it had, everything had to happen quite quickly. And what's what's the area like? If anyone hasn't been, I'm guessing it's extremely remote. Is that right? Yeah, not compared to where we're based, actually. Really? <laughs> it's uh, it's in the middle of the Cairngorms, but it's very well linked. Uh, Aviemore is the closest town, and it has. Kind of motorway access and train, you know, and there's, a, there's an airport about an hour away. But the thing is that it's it's very popular you know, with, with tourists and also people that aren't tourists. I mean, we, we go over that way regularly ourselves because it's you know, it's very beautiful. You know, you've got lots of walks. You've got you know you can you can go hill walking, but you can also trek through the forest. There's lots of walks. It's very easily accessible. It, it's it's a beautiful area. You know, it, it's mm. it's uh, so it's always very popular. You know, and mm-hmm. it's ideal for the clients. They're based in London at the moment, you know. But one of them is from uh, Schoon in Perthshire, which is about an hour south from the from the site, and then one of them is from Idaho. And uh, and they've had a, a house there that their greater wider family have used for a long time. And the road was being upgraded recently, the main road, so it was compulsory purchased, and uh, so they found themselves. 
they, they wanted to find the house because they allow all the family uses at one time, individual parts of the family, you know, so it was really a kind of magnet, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that they allow their, their, their sisters or brothers or parents or lots of people use it. So whilst there's one client, there's actually lots of users of it, you know, so yeah. So, so they were quite lucky to find uh, the spot, actually. And when I went to see it with them on the morning that I, that we went, I received another phone call from two other people who were interested in it. I had seen it go on the market like three wow. years before, and yeah. uh, and and were interested in arranging a visit to it with uh, with us. And I'd said, "Well, I've actually got a visit there today, so we'll have to have to wait and see how that goes." And uh, yeah, it's a great spot. I mean, it's it, it's really an embarrassment for riches. You know, it, it has the best views are to the north, which look up at an area called the Spey Valley, which is kind of famous mm-hmm. for whiskey, actually. And uh, and then to the south, you don't really have much in the way of views at the site but there's the opportunity to bring in lots of soul again which we did but there's not there's not a lot of far-reaching views in that direction and then to mm-hmm. the east it actually looks towards uh, Cairngorm Mountain uh, and where all the ski runs and things are so there's actually some views in the house line up with where you see the ski runs down the mountain so yes. it, it's a really okay. special spot actually it's, it, it's, it's a fantastic spot and the compulsory purchase order that was for a house that the family already had. So yeah. I think this is basically a replacement for. And it's a hol- is it a holiday home then? Is that it is at the moment. Uh, how it will mm. how it will work out in the long run? Uh, I suppose that's slightly COVID dependent as well, you know, and yeah. uh, and career dependent and that kind of thing. I think the, there's a possibility it, it may be more than that. Mm-hmm. And what's the kind of local industry then? If people are living. Um, in that area, where what's it near? Uh, tourism is a big draw in in, in yeah. the Gorms. So it's a very big industry. You know, there Inverness is forty five minutes drive away. So the thing is, you do get yeah. many people that commute. But I, I would say that I would say tourism and a, and a mix of kind of contracting and industries that that throw up around those things as well. I mean, the the contractor that built that project. In our opinion, is one of the best residential contractors in the country. They just happened to be yeah. based near the job, you know. So they had built the house that won the Grand Designs House of the Year a couple of years ago and things. Okay. So they're an excellent contractor, and you've actually got an abundance of very good contractors in that little tiny valley. Yeah. Uh, so which is very good for us. Yeah. So putting together a crack team then for this house <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's all, almost uh, embarrassment of riches in that way as well, you know, in that you've got probably four really good contractors within 30 minutes drive of where that spot was so yeah so we weren't struggling to find one but but we found one that we work with fairly regularly and we do another work with as well you know and they're yeah. an excellent contractor you know working with them really made the house what it was i would say so tell me a little bit about the the existing house on the site so there's who who was living there what was what was the what's the building like before you worked on it uh, there had been a couple who had lived there for quite a while, and they had done some briefer work to the house. It's a traditional Scottish house, and it was a farmhouse previously. Uh, anecdotally, it would seem that it was given to a previous owner for, as a reward for service in the war. Because uh, right. uh, it's an island of privately owned land, and kind of uh, the estate surrounds it in its entirety. I'm not sure yeah. how true that is, but that's certainly the anecdotal local evidence. And, yeah. uh, and then, yeah, it was a traditional house. 
It'd been extended at some point, but probably hundred years ago it had been extended, and then it had a series of outbuildings that 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 was part of the challenge of the site was that the original brief was can we extend into this steading uh, barn that was there, but it was five meters lower than the house, six meters away, and on a on a, on a unusual angle to the house, mm-hmm. and uh, and that became something quite difficult to do. It's, it's a lovely house, but it's just not. It wasn't kind of suitable for kind of modern living in the way that many of the traditional Scottish houses aren't. They're, they're quite small, modular spaces. Yeah. And, uh, but we have we've kept it and we've refurbished inside and we've made changes to the layout. But the things that made it interesting and gave it character are things we, we've tried to retain. You know, uh, so mm-hmm. that it's it's very much a house of its place. It couldn't just be anywhere. You know, and uh, but we found when we went to consider replacing the steading, because of the angles and the level differences and things, and because of the fact that the wider family group that use it includes you know parents, grandparents, you know, that kind of thing, we wanted to create a lot on the single level, that, you know, as we could. So mm-hmm. so part of the thing became when we looked at the steading, it was actually about almost as a concept removing its roof and using it as a plinth. And then placing right. placing the extension to the house atop that, so that we could create a yes. consistent level across the site. Yeah, because everything on the site has worked with the existing topography, which is quite complicated the the, the way it, it goes, and and we wanted to keep that because it's what gives it its uh, kind of character that you can't you're not aware of the mass of the building from anywhere in public land at all. You know, I, I, all you see is a traditional house because of the way the land works. It's uh, yeah. that the the new elements that we built are completely screened from view, and you can't really see them from anywhere until you are down at the site. Because we worked with that topography and worked with where the existing tree cover was, you're not just not aware of it. Yeah, was that with the restrictions placed by the national park by its siting and where it's located no it was actually just because we we thought that it was good practice when we kind of analyzed the site the, the national park are actually a really forward thinking kind of dynamic planning authority mm. uh, they only call in but, uh, the way it works in the national park is that there are lots of local authorities you know, Aberdeenshire, Highland, Murray, Perthshire that all encroach into the national park and mm. the planners from each of those local authorities will deal with applications unless it's deemed of high importance and it's called in but that almost never happens for a one-off house that's really for major things and it's a shame in a way because the the planners at the national park are really kind of forward thinking so it wouldn't fill us with dread to be called in in a way and this one wasn't called in no well we've never had a project called in they were very really called in a house you know that but they are yeah i'm not sure whether it's because the way they are as an employer maybe attracts people who want to, uh, you know, live in that area. But we've never had an issue with, with working with the planners there at all. I mean, we actually find that, if anything, it's slightly more liberating working there than than elsewhere sometimes. Really, yeah. is there any any kind of discussion ever of or any issue with buildings kind of ruining the, the national park in any way of with that with that freedom? Uh, that, uh, yeah. Of course there is, I would say, yeah. I mean, we have, even though we know things won't be called in, we have taken the advice in the past and things uh, as well. I think the thing is that buildings have to be of their place uh, in that kind of location. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean 
fitting in. You know, I, I mean, recently when I was given a lecture uh, and I mentioned the project, someone, another architect said to me that our buildings were quite willful, you know, and, and that they weren't, uh, they weren't subservient and hiding. And, yeah. uh, and I think, I'm not sure if they thought that was an insult, but I, I, I was, <laughs> I, 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 I was quite quietly pleased by that, you know, because so, yeah. there is this thing in, in, in Scotland, and I know we have it in other parts of the UK as well, where, especially in areas that are beautiful, you know, in the Highlands, that this thing that things, we should almost be apologetic about the new buildings that we create, that, that's not set mm. particularly comfortably with us, you know, and they, everything has mm-hmm. this uh, white building with a black slate pointy hat, which is the kind of approach, which is not a traditional Highland building form, it's not a vernacular building, I mean, it only only arrived here a hundred years ago, you know. So mm. before that, that wasn't the kind of buildings that lifted the landscape. And another thing is that why should we be apologetic? Really, I mean, it's yeah. nice, it's nice to fit with the topography, which is what we were doing here. And at the same time, it's nice that you can't see the building, but not not to appease planners. It's nice that you can't see the building because as you enter the site, it suddenly appears before you. So it's actually yeah. more as a reveal. We have no issue with creating things that don't blend with the landscape per se, because they're not overly willful. They are generated by place. You know, it's yeah. just that I don't think that we should be bashful about contemporary yeah. architecture in beautiful places. So, when you did this visit with um, the very first visit with the estate agent and with the clients, what were you talking about? When you were there, were you already talking about, well, you could do this and you could do that? Well, you know, what kind of happens in these conversations? Uh, it was an open house. So we were partly talking about how terrible it was and the other people, if they could overhear us, shouldn't buy it. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, no, for the most part, we talked about opportunities and kind of walked around the site and just told them kind of verbally what our initial gut response to the site was, you know. And talked a little bit about sun path and views and some of those things that are really important, but they they kind of come slightly later to kind of from the heart kind of response to the site to me, which was about the fact that it was a site that gave you the opportunity to create lots of different types of spaces with different views, you know, because you have those far-reaching north views up the Spey Valley. You also have focus views to the south, to the garden, you get views from the east that look towards the mountain and the ski runs. And that idea that we would try to create a house that had lots of different types of spaces. Spaces for 15 people to gather together. Spaces for one person. You know, big expansive views, small focus views. And that the idea that the site really allowed that, you know, that it was, for all its difficulties, that's what made it interesting and gave us the mm. opportunity to do something. Now, the most difficult building we've ever designed was on a flat site with nice views in every direction and good road access. Yes. And it was it was too easy. So it became unbelievably difficult because there was nothing to react to. I mean, I think most architects are that way because we're yeah. programmed that way to seek out those problems, you know. So Yeah, that, we that, want to make it difficult. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, want, <laughs> you want to respond to something. And, and I think that the difficult things about about the site at Tullacrew are the things that when we look at it now as a finished project, those, those are the things that were the most successful. Yeah. So what, what were the difficult things then that you were, you were already kind of picking up on at that visit? Uh, certainly the levels were a mm-hmm. challenge, you know, in trying to create something that could be largely on a single level 
but smaller upper first floor and lower floor but most of it on a single level was difficult to achieve that you know and, and also that the client had this really interesting part of the brief which was their their grandparents 1960s ford falcon that they had brought over from america some years before mm-hmm. and when they are in the area they use it it's not a model you know so they, they mm-hmm. will they will uh, take it out around around the area and so it had to be that even though vehicular access was going to be on the lower level it had to be suitable for a very old car to make its way mm-hmm. down there and, and things so so that that presented some problems but in a really good way you know and actually the falcon uh, kind of dictated some things about the job i mean the spacing of the exposed y structural column is actually so that the, the falcon can sit between the column and the building when it's in use without having to be put away in the garage every time right so the falcon sits in that space comfortably and that became the yeah. generator for that and that lines up with the access track to the site so that as you come down into the lower site when they're on when they're at the house the first thing that you will see is the falcon sitting beneath the building you know yeah. so that kind of became a generator for it you know so mm-hmm. I, and the falcon was discussed at the very first meeting as well but brian one half of the client is very uh, it's a big place in his heart in the car you know and it's, a, it's yeah. an amazing beautiful thing actually it's become something that Every time you, you visit the site, I mean, last week I was there with a, a judging panel for something, and everyone wants to see the Falcon. You know? <laughs> so, and uh, and uh, you, you take it off its cover, and, uh, you, and everyone kind of peers in. Did, and, you, was, did you have to meet the Falcon quite early on? <laughs> yeah, I met, I met it, I think, visit number two. I went, yeah. <laughs> I went to their previous house and had a look at the Falcon. And it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you think about a, a design object, I mean, it's it's like the first time that you see, you know, a, a cord chaise or a or a gyrofocus stove or something. You know, like when when mm-hmm. you when I first saw it and it's red leather interior and it's one of the first cars to have air conditioning in the states. So it has air conditioning right. the size of your face, a lot of the yeah. dash and thing, and it just has a real bit of style about it. You know, and and, and that that was a real indicator to us. You know, the client is interested in something. You know, and it, we always try and find out what people are interested in. You know, that, that mm-hmm. like kind of makes buildings better. But when you see it, you think these people have a bit of style. These people have mm-hmm. a, bit of, a bit of an aesthetic interest. You know, so that's a, that's an interesting one. Yeah. It's an interesting one that's come up a few times with, with different guests. Of there's one guest I remember that's talking about shoes and the client, the shoes that the client's wearing, and they walk in yeah. the door and they're straight away like these. These are the clients for us. Yeah. Uh, I think I remember somebody else mentioning about. App, using Apple Mac products is a is sort of suggest to them they appreciate design. Oh yeah, um, and and then obviously the car. I mean, it's, you've got it in one of the the pictures, and it's a kind of double take shot because you've got this cantilever, you've got the V shaped column supporting it. It's some, there's something a little bit LA about the property a little bit, but also you've got the snow and the the Scottish setting, and then the car. You kind of look at it, and think, is this a sh- When's this shot taken? Yeah. <laughs> There's a little kind of moment pause. Um, the thing about it is that we, I wouldn't say we're looking for any specific thing, but when you when you feel that clients have a design sensibility, I mean, every architect loves that. Of course we do. Mm. You know, and you feel like you're pushing on an open door there. I suppose that what we are looking for is when you have clients that have real design interest, but it's quite understated. I think mm. there's, not, there's nothing better than, finding that you know and, and it's uh 
the idea that you've been in someone's house speaking to them for an hour and you suddenly notice, I don't know, a wonderful book or they've got a really nice undertaken mm-hmm. watch or something, something that indicates to you that they are interested in a kind of design aesthetic. Mm-hmm. The best thing that I ever had going to see a client was that we went into their house and everything was Dieter Rams. Like the yeah. yeah, you know, it was the the Vito storage system, and there was a Dieter Rams coffee table book sitting there, less is more, you know, and they had the uh, retro uh, kind of bronze record table, you know, yeah. and they, and they and they said, oh, it doesn't work, but I bought it off eBay, but I just had to have it because look at it, and I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, you're the people for us. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was at a house recently. I think I think it was a relative or somebody that had the Dieter Rams, the Braun hairdryer, oh. and I was like, "This is amazing!" But I realised it wasn't through any kind of design or collection thing. It was just purely they'd looked after it well, and that's just. Well, I see. Even they better. didn't. They didn't buy new stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's even better. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's uh, that that. I think what you touch on there is always quite nice. People that understand the you know, kind of buy cheap, buy twice thing. You know, people yeah. that have something, and it doesn't matter whether it's. A, you know, an expensive thing, or whether it's something that's well known, but if they have something that has a kind of design quality to it, and they want it to last, mm. they want it to be part of the kind of. There's a big, big attraction to that for mm. us. You know, it's that it's not that the opposite of the kind of fast fashion kind of thing. It, it's always I've, nice to see those things, like the Dieter Rams is just a really good reference as well because I think it's one of those things that can go totally unnoticed. If mm. you'll get sort of designers geeking over it and saying, "Look at this, look at that," and then you'll have like a friend or relative that'd be like, well, it's just a hairdryer. It's just this. And when you look closely, you're like, actually, look, it's different. It's totally different to the other stuff that you, you can uh, get. I, 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 I think that's the thing. The fact that it is, that, I mean, the other day I was at an inquiry down in, in Somerset, actually, and I was speaking to a client and, and I had lost the lens cap for my camera. I'm into photography. And I said, oh, you know, I have to find the lens cap. And he said, yeah, you know, because... You know, I'm I'm into Leica too. You know, like the Leica camera, it's a, and it's mm-hmm. a Leica, so we have to find your lens cap. And he spent thirty minutes tra- crawling around the garden with us to find the lens cap. You know, and I yeah. thought then, yeah, any anyone that's into something understated like that and understands the importance yeah. of it, yeah, I thought, yeah, it's definitely a job for us. So back to the house. I mean, what I like, what I love talking through things like this is you can start looking at a house like this and you think, oh, it's beautiful and it's been designed in such a way to make it beautiful. And But actually breaking it down, it's kind of getting into the mind of the designer and talking it through with you already, we're getting to this point where, to me, some of this design seems like, well, this was the only way it could be designed. It's just mm. all the pieces sort of fall together. And I'm just going to kind of summarise what I've got so far, but you've got the existing house, it's on... A bit of an outcrop it's kind of higher than the, the land all drops around mm. it it's a family that wants to expand it and use it so lots of members of family can use it so already and and older members as well so you want it all kind of level so that's that first challenge but then you've got the car that comes into the equation of wanting somewhere to to store it and so effectively to summarize the design what you've done is you've removed an, an outbuilding the barn that's next to this building You've extended, you've you've created this new barn kind of shape, single story um, black box that extends from the house level, but because of the topography, 
it ends up cantilevering over the the landscape mm. and underneath you tuck in a solid stone base which is where they store the car and the mm. cantilever is the carport so that's mm. does that yeah. kind of summarize essentially what you've, yeah, you've done here well, I mean, what we really decided to do was to take the old house and use it as private space you know on a diagrammatic level you know so main master bedroom kids rooms you know for, for their children that come all the time and then kind of dedicated kind of guest things which is actually one of the clients uh, parents use it all the time you know uh, yeah. and, and they use it more than anyone else so they have a dedicated kind of bedroom there with a kind of uh, suite that's theirs and then to create a glass link a relatively minimal thing between old and new and that where we put the new building we'll be concentrating on creating large social spaces where all the family can come together uh, and then beneath we would really have what we call the gubbins, you know, the kind of renewable infrastructure, a kind of washroom. And the idea that you come to the glass link when you're arriving at the house, but if you've been, because of the area, if you've been kayaking or you've been mountain biking or you've been, you know, hiking, you come to the lower level and you go straight in and there's a utility, there's an opportunity, you know, for you to put bikes straight into the garage and straight in. So it has a kind of clean entrance and an activity entrance, really, to kind of fit mm-hmm. with how they want to live. And even the, the stone from downstairs, we were trying to reuse as much as we could. But we found that the actual quality of the stone uh, of the steading was terrible and it had been patched over the years by concrete or block or whatever. And there was a lot of retaining walls on the site that were this lovely kind of stone. It's kind of mixed stone, but mostly a kind of sandstone that we had to try to find because we thought if we were going to bring stone to the site, we wanted it to come from the same rock face. We wanted it to come from the same mm-hmm. quarry. And so we working with the contractor, we found that the quarry was uh, it's about 10 miles away, but it was closed, permanently closed. You know, so we actually, the contractor managed to convince the kind of huge quarry, national quarry company to open the quarry uh, and send someone there for health and safety. But they would just sit while the contractor picked the stone from the rock face, you know, uh, kind of by eye and then brought yeah. it to the site. So we've actually built the lower floor from the exact same stone. We have reused the stone on the site that we were able to, you know, so no good stone left the site at all. So it's yeah. a mix of new that you've brought onto the site. Mm, yeah. And yeah. Why, why was that important to you, that it had to be the same stone and from nearby? It might be a pet peeve of mine, but I'm not 100% sure, is that you often see stone, uh, especially in kind of, the traditional Scottish stone, sometimes it can be a real mix because buildings that had importance are beautiful dressed stone. Buildings that weren't can sometimes be a mix of numerous stones and numerous techniques. Mm-hmm. So the stone that we were left with on the site that had been used for retaining walls and that kind of stuff was actually beautiful. It was really nicely done and it was a gorgeous mm-hmm. thing. And the idea of having something either has to match, it can't almost match. It has to completely not match if that's the case. You know, So the idea of trying to put another stone with it because we wanted to have a very heavy plinth on the lower floor you know so because yep. of the site and because of the fact that we're hoping to use stone that kind of stone was the obvious choice and when we found out that we could get it from the same quarry i mean if it's so architectural but i was so excited <laughs> you know <laughs> it's, it's one of the things that you know when when you take people to the uh, you know kind of potential clients things to the job it's one of the things i can 
I can tell in their eyes I'm telling them about, but I'm not 100% sure they're as enthusiastic about it as I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the idea of being able to go to the same quarry, that stone that was used in the construction of that house perhaps 160 years ago came from, mm-hmm. there's something about that that, you know, we're all storytellers, everyone likes a story and a narrative. Mm-hmm. There's something about that that just, it just sits so comfortably to be able to do that. You know, and it's hard to tell with the new and the old stone meet. Actually, you know, but even already, yeah. the stone's been on site and in place for about a year to fourteen months, something like that. But already, you know, it's quite hard to tell where new and old they kind of meet. And did that require commitment from the client, like real buy-in? There was it costing them more money, for example, to to do it that way? Yeah, it, it did cost them slightly more money to do it, but again, because yeah, clients had really understood. And, you know what they wanted to do and what they wanted to achieve mm. and things, and so it, it it was never that we had to give them a sell on something like that. You know, it was a thing that we would all discuss it, discuss it. Sorry, and they would instantly in the kind of site meeting, you could see that they understood the importance of doing this. You know, and and it was you were entirely pushing on an open door at all times. Yeah. You know, which was fantastic, and they really. You know, considering because of COVID and things, since it's been finished, they barely got to spend any time there. But they yeah. already have a kind of real love of the site, you know, and you can see that the the idea that that recently when they let one of their sisters and their family use the house, and when I was speaking to them about it, it's as if they had the same joy as if they had used the house. You know, so this yeah. idea that they've made something for their wider family, I don't think is lost on them. I think it's something that they have a real love of the site already, you know, and, and the building, which is it's great to see, you know, when you do something, to see that yeah. the people that, that use it and the people you've done it for like it as much as you do. Because you yes. uh, I think as an architect, that's often the curse, is that you, you're so invested in things. And the idea of being able to hand it over and disappear is always a little bit like giving something up. So the fact, <laughs> that, just the fact that we, we are quite regularly there at the moment for, you know, like I say, awards judging, or we were there to, uh, I can't remember what I had to go for recently. I had to go for so, to sort something out for the client because they're you know, down in London and you know, we've got access and things. It's, it's been nice. It's made it easier to say goodbye to it. Yeah. Do you, do you find that hard to say goodbye to projects? I do. I do because it's in, in, in our heads, I and mean, I can't speak for the other, the other architects here, but certainly if I've designed a job, in my head, I can. It's finished, you know. From when it's done, mm-hmm. I mean, I know the, I know the ironmongery. I know everything that I would like about it. So, I kind of feel as if it's been mine for longer than it's been anyone else's because they haven't seen yeah. it yet. And then when you get to that point and it's finished, yeah, it's it's always quite. You know, you're busy and you're away doing other things, and you suddenly think to yourself a couple of months later, oh well, I haven't made any visits to there. You know, it's mm-hmm. quite odd. And I find that quite hard sometimes. But it's wonderful to see clients move in. I know that's slightly cliche, yeah. but I love when you see that they have slightly taken things in a way that you didn't envisage. When you go yeah. and it's furnished differently. You know, when you go and they've, they're using a space maybe slightly differently than you thought they would. I actually really like yeah. that. You know, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that I'm a control freak, so perhaps I shouldn't like. <laughs> I actually love it. I, I love to go back and see that and see them reimagining something in a way that you didn't do it. I think is mm. I, I, I think that that's a sign that the building's working for them. Has that happened here? Is that has that had the opportunity for that to happen? It, it's not had the opportunity yet, but already from the bits 
that are being used more. Like for example, the, uh, the parents of the client that have been there more than more, more than anyone, you can already see them starting to use the space slightly differently. And, and there's a little porch that is not not architecturally wow or anything. It was the access to the house, and we changed it to a little space because when you know when there's twenty people there, you need these spaces to squirrel yourself away. Sometimes you know it's the thought. So we made it into a tiny little space. It's about two meters by 1.4 or something and it faces exactly on the axis to the runs that come down the mountain the ski runs so there's just yeah. a, there's just a desk in there with a single chair and a whiskey cabinet <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and that to me is, is one I, I hadn't what we had thought is that we would have some built-in seating in there and a little stove and people could sit and look you know because there's still snow on the top of the mountain now and it's quite yeah. nice to look at it you know in july and what they've done is no one person will go in there and read and, and they will have a whiskey, and they will look at the view, and, and that's not how we envisaged it. But actually, it's it's lovely that that's you know the way yeah. we're using it. Well, I imagine as well because of the way you've designed it, like you said right at the beginning about all the the opportunity of all the different views, the, the opportunity for different spaces. That in combination with different family members, different generations, and all of them growing and changing. Uh, it's going to be an ever-evolving. It's it seems like the kind of building that will ever kind of evolve in that sense. I, I certainly hope so. Uh, I mean, it, it's been conceived in that way that even like the the client's children's rooms, one of them is very much a teenage boy room at the moment, and by that I mean it has a gaming chair in it, you know, and yeah. that kind of thing. And but you can easily see that room changing as the family changes. You can easily see things becoming, you know, perhaps. Uh, a private study or perhaps it becomes their children's room at some point and the house has been designed to allow kind of lots of generations to use it but in a comfortable way not in a kind of oh yeah there's a room there go and use it but even the way the bedrooms are positioned is so that if a family group comes and it's an adult and children they're together you know yeah. and if grandparents come well, they don't tend to come with that baggage so their guest is separate you know, and, and, yeah. it has, and it has a games block, which sounds perhaps more grand than it is, but we, we built a kind of games room as a separate building that is deliberately orientated away from the house. So the thing is, because right. that's also a guest suite. So if people go to use it, the idea is they're not overlooked from the house. So as the, ch- yeah. as the kids get older, perhaps they bring their friends there, they can go and use it, and they don't feel as if they're constantly under the scrutiny of everyone else. You know, so so that's actually worked out. Again, it's not a particularly architectural conversation. You know, to have a a room that's got a ping pong table in it and a bar and a hot tub outside, mm. which is what it has. You know, but, but it's that idea that that fits in with how you want to use a house in that kind of location. You know, it's bringing big family groups. There's lots of you maybe doing different things at different times. You know, and mm. the house, the house in the wider site really has to allow that. And how was that? Were you doing drawings, like plans, and, and sat around the table with these clients and trying out different configurations, or did you have a, a master plan in mind? Uh, normally, when we design any house, we'll have about 50 ideas. And then we found that it works best that, that we whittle things down. And we normally show our client three entirely distinct ways to do something that all answer the mm-hmm. brief. And we're trying to tease out from them what's important to them, what they like, what they don't like. And we also want them to have skin in the game. We want them to be a real part of the process. And I think that thing where they have the opportunity to shape what comes after that 
is really important to kind of how we work with, with anyone. And it's, it mm -hmm. might be, oh, you know, I like one option, but I like the, I like these elements of other things. And of course, it's not a copy and paste job. It's finding ways to revise those things so that we can give them the same elements. And, yeah. and to do that, you have to break some eggs. We have to find out what they don't like. And that's, yeah. that's, that's as valid as anything, you know. So yeah, it was a good collaborative process with, with the clients on this job. And, I, and I'm sorry. You know, I find that really useful when if a client says what they don't like, um, it can it's quite it's, it can be a sort of negative angle to come at it from, but it's quite interesting sometimes to frame because it is that challenge of getting out from a client what they want without them necessarily knowing it. Yeah. Um, what I want to know what these three options were. Of, um, <laughs> it was one of them that what we sort of what we yes. see as the house now pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually, I would say it's the project that we've done where there's been the least change to an initial mm. option. It, it it's pretty much exactly as the option was really there's been a couple yeah. of weeks as we went through it and again having a really good contractor and having a really good client has meant that when we're on site if an opportunity comes up and it's a great idea we're not egotistical about where that idea comes from if a contractor has a great idea that makes the building better we're we're all about it and all about making mm -hmm. it work and understanding how it fits into a whole so there's one thing in particular, it was actually a client's idea why we were building the job, is that there's a little toilet that's just off of the entrance space. And no one knows it's there because it's a, it's a hidden toilet in bookcases. Right? And that oh, sounded cool. sounded so naff, you know, a kind of highbrow architect, oh, oh dearie me, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> and then there's no zealot like a convert. Like it was a client's idea and we made it work. And now you access it by pulling forward on the bookshelf trumps the art of the deal which uh, which, <laughs> which triggers the hidden door mechanism you know yeah. and, and allows you access to the toilet the client picked the book it was their sense of humor yeah. they actually spent months, months picking the book and it went, yeah. it went through like they, they go to a book group it went through lots of kind of highbrow books and then i think maybe brian being american he said no but the zeitgeist i want it to be <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to, I'm going to go and buy Trump's biography so that yeah. I can use the cover of it to create the hidden door mechanism. I wonder if he felt compelled to explain in the shop. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's for uh, you <laughs> won't understand, but um. well, interestingly, when I was there recently, I say for a, a judging visit thing, and it's other architects that you're you're taking down, and I hadn't explained about the toilet. I'd forgotten, so they thought it was just this built-in cabinetry. As we walked past them, and the Trump book was really quite prominent. And I saw one of them look at it, but not ask any questions. <laughs> you know? And I thought, oh dear, I hope that, I, hope, and I suddenly felt compelled to say, move the Trump book and you'll see. <laughs> you know? I, I, I also quite like that little element, it's sort of pretentious, but an element of delight, that, you know, yeah. the, of something that's, that, that the client is very invested in that because it was, it was his idea. You know? mm -hmm. and, and when we made it work, and the, the contractors did a wonderful job. You know, of making it work, and I think that thing of something that is perhaps not as highbrow and not as you know, kind of architecturally driven. It's quite nice that they have that little element of fun, I guess, about it. You know? Yeah. So because it's not a stuffy architectural thing, certainly. You know, and then you and go inside, and it's oh, sorry. It's probably not something you could have put in an option either. Imagine if your architect said, "Right, we're going to have Donald Trump's book. It's going to be a secret handle to a secret toilet." Yeah, you know, and it's that idea of something developing organically. You know, and when you mm -hmm. go into that little room, it has no windows. It's a little tiny toilet, 
And there's a wallpaper company in Glasgow, I, I, I'm switching some, they go back to my roots, called Timorous Beasties. Timorous mm-hmm. Beasties is a, a really famous kind of fabric and wallpaper uh, company that did these really cool designs sold all over the world. And uh, so it's like a thistle, but it's a kind of drawing of a thistle on like a gold kind of a chintzy kind of background. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's like going to an Aladdin's cave, it's like a different world when you pass through that. It's like Narnia. You know, and, yeah. and and I quite like that. No one expects that room when they're in yeah. that space. You know, so which is all kind of clean lines and minimal, and and then so suddenly, did you show it to the judges? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, you did. So they yeah. did find out about the they did find out eventually. About one of them yeah. wanted to go to the toilet there, especially. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, and and I guess that that the the main extension part of the house, you know, kind of where that sits, it's kind of conceived as a kind of contemporary take on a Cairngorm's kind of hunting lodge, you know, right. like, and the, the, the previous house had been a kind, of, a kind of lodge style. So we wanted to create something that had a bit of volume, that didn't feel cold and minimal, you know, that had a bit of warmth mm-hmm. to it, you know, and uh, and that was why the form kind of developed the way it did, and the idea that it's, it's a big social space, but it's kind of a double-sided firewall that kind of divides it. So the idea is that they can be all together you know, kind of within that space that's open to the landscape and it has a covered terrace on one side to the north, you know, which mm-hmm. is which is actually more there for making the rooms feel like they flow in and out than it is for actually using, you know. So right. it, the, the main benefit of it is having all the glazing open but being inside, <laughs> which is slightly yeah. slightly odd. And, and that seems to be the way that they're using it as well, is that it has a couple of small chairs on it, but anytime you're there and the clients are there, all the, all the glazing's open. Which yeah. is exactly what we, even if it's raining, and that's that's yeah. why we wanted it to be that way, you know. And into the old house, you know, where it's kind of modular spaces, there was this little staircase, this kind of traditional Scottish winder kind of stair that was lethal. I mean, it was a really dangerous stair. But the original intention, we were keeping it, and mm-hmm. uh, we didn't appreciate how dangerous it was until during construction people kept falling down it when they were carrying things. <laughs> I, I would notice for, for any HSE people listening, it was not it was not that dangerous. And, uh, and it was actually through conversations with the client and the contractor that we decided we were going to remove it and create a new stair void in the old house. And that meant taking a bathroom upstairs, which allowed us to create a void and bring a light down into it. And that very yeah. much developed organically with the client and the contractor. You know, so... It was they made it an easy job to work on. I would say, and the, yeah. there was no pushing against something that you know, they didn't want to budge. And, yeah. and the reason I mentioned the staircase specifically is that there's a lot of blackened stainless steel in this house, and there's a there's a little guy who works in a shed in Dingwall who is, in my estimation, one of the best metal workers I've ever. Well, he is the best metal worker I've ever seen. You know, and yeah. he, he normally he'll make things for. You know, for the whiskey company selling a five hundred thousand pound bottle of whiskey, you'll make the metal clasps for the box, you know, or wow. he, uh, and he makes these amazing things, you know. So he made the stair out of black and stainless steel, and the stove surrounds and the outside log store, and there's these subtle bits of detailing throughout it. Where again, both us and the contractor were able to work with him. We've worked with him before. We worked with him a, a number of jobs, and what you get from him is. Everything takes so long, you know, but, it, but it's so well made. I mean, even the, the it's a bit dull, but the chemical that he puts on the stainless steel to blacken it only makes the stainless steel workable for about seven seconds, and then it goes back to being inert. 
So he's there doing wow. this huge span with like a Dremel. <laughs> and, uh, and he'll wow. do like a three centimeter by three centimeter bit at a time. Uh, and then he'll move to the next bit. Uh, and it, yeah. is, it is, I think the word kind of artisanal or artisan is, is overused. You know, it's yeah. like you're people that do things that don't really fit that description. But when you see this guy working on, on metal stuff, and, and you see, because it doesn't give a flat finish, it, there's color and depth and, and things to everything that he does. It's just, it's, it's, it's such a delight to get to work with people like that on jobs. Yeah. yeah. Who else is involved then? I and mean, we've got the builder that's that's happy to go to a closed down quarry to get stone. We've got the artisan who's who's doing the the aluminium work. Um, is there anybody else involved of it, like the structural engineer, for example? Yeah, I mean the structural engineer. They were really important. They're actually a company that we do an awful lot of work with because they are a phenomenal engineer to work with. It's very unusual to hear an architect say such a thing, you know. Like, <laughs> but the. Uh, they're design-focused engineers. So it doesn't matter if what you ask or what you push on. If they say something can't be done, it really cannot be done. You know, yeah. they are happy to go away and do a week of extra maths to try to make something work. You know, so yeah, it's things like we wanted to slim down the floor depth by fifty mil on that job, and that was a real pain for them. You know, but they figured mm-hmm. out how to make it work. And the why column, we were always pushing for it to be smaller. And it got to a point where we got it to the size it is now, and they pleaded with us not to make it any smaller. And they said, <laughs> they said it might work, but honestly, please let's not make it any smaller. And now, when you see it, it does actually look very slender. But I, yeah, had, I, had, I had in my head it was too big, and I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And they reined me in, actually. Uh, and they, they were a delight to work with on the job. And it's, you know what it's like anytime you deliver a job, it's never, it's never the architect that has done it, you're lucky that you have all these people that can contribute to things. Yeah. The contractor, the fact that one of the best timber suppliers in the, the UK is is 10 miles down the road. You know, and, mm-hmm. supply, and we work with them all over, but they supplied the cladding and the and the flooring. And I was a little issue with the cladding uh, afterwards. And again, because they're a quality company to deal with, no problem, out, looked at it, addressed it, you know, fixed it. And I think things like that, they take a little bit of worry away from us on the job when you know you're mm-hmm. working with people that they, they're not just there to make a buck, you know, that they actually really yeah. genuinely care about the quality of what they're doing, you know, so. Well, it goes back to the, uh, the Dieter Rams uh, hair dryer or the Laker camera. Mm. It's, it's, it's that attention to detail, like that column you're talking about, that focus, you've got to have people there that are focused on that. Cause if it's too big, it's not going to, yeah, look right. It completely changed the, the look or the feel of the building. Hmm. I mean, even I mean, the, the the timber supplier, whilst they did just supply the timber, they didn't only supply the timber. They you know, we work with them all the time. We wanted to figure out the detail, you know. So it, so it's a, it's a narrower board than normal that they supply. It's an open range screen, so it never touches each other. So as timber moves, it doesn't affect the detailing. And then that led to us again. We've been experimenting with these open range screens for years. So it led to how do we do the window reveals and there'll be like a five mil gap and then the timber's mitered and it runs in. So there's a little bit of testing and development really with them mm-hmm. as well, which was only made possible because they were good to deal with. You know? And then down mm-hmm. to most of the glazing is, is, is internormally the Austrian uh, window manufacturer, which is great. But the glass link is Skyframe, which is a kind of Swiss the frameless glazing system. Yeah. Done, done by a specialist glazing company in Glasgow who are just a delight to work with, actually. You know, I mean, they've got a massive pivot door and 
there's a lot of things to come together there. I mean, the the, yeah. the, the glass is raggled, cut into the old stone wall. So you know, so there's it's there's not a lot of leeway when it comes to fitting that and kind of working the details. Yeah. So yeah, it was very much a kind of team effort to make all those things work. I did want to ask about the the glass link of why was that important to you to to visually kind of have a separation from the old building and the new one. We kind of. The approach that we like is a kind of deferential contrast when you have a nice old building, you know. So we wanted to for it to be able to stand and be appreciated for what it was, actually. And then the glass link is actually one of the big challenges of the job. It was supposed to be half that size, and when we were digging into underneath it, we found out that the old house was built on nothing, just nothing. There were air mm-hmm. holes underneath in the soil where there was just a void in the soil, numerous voids the size of footballs. And the our beach ball, I should say, the the fact that the old house hadn't collapsed at some point is an absolute mystery to me. Yeah. So what we had to do at great expense and time actually was dig underneath that whole end of the house and build the kind of wall that you associate with motorway bridges. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't to do the new part; it was actually to save the old house that we were yeah. doing that that whole end of it was just built on the worst ground I've ever seen. So that then, mm. we then had to widen the glass link, which when you look at the job now, I'm so glad it happened with hindsight. You know, look, but that as a result of the extra expense for the client. And so we ended up making the glass link wider in order for the structural considerations underneath to work. You know, because that was a completely unforeseen thing. You always expect with old buildings that there's going to be gremlins and things yeah. you want to find. But Finding out that it's a miracle at standing was slightly unexpected. And that was where the engineer yeah. came into the thing. I, mean, I, I was phoned by the contractor, and I had just made a site visit. I wasn't due to go back for a little while. And I said, please come now. Well, I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I went, and they showed it to me, and I FaceTimed with the engineer. you know, And, uh, and they're in Glasgow, so it's about three hours, two and a half hours drive. And I said, look, can you see this? And they said, mm. I'll, be, I'll be there in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and they got in the car and headed there. And we all looked at it and we agreed what was going to happen. And it started happening the next morning. Because it was wow. so, we were so concerned by the old house and the mm. condition it was in. And it's a really important part of the site. I mean, I think that it just, it pulls it all together. I mean, I, I don't think a project on that site that was a, demolition in a new built house i don't think that that would have been as successful you know so mm-hmm. the old house actually has a big place in my heart kind of for the site so no, it was a yeah. bit, it was a bit fraught for maybe four or five weeks until we were able to get enough structure under there that yeah. it would be okay you know so but that was that was the most difficult part of the build was actually something unforeseen that we weren't, that wasn't to do with our new build, it was to do with securing the house. Yeah, so it's all unseen work as well. It's all the work just to preserve what's actually there. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, so it's, it's a, it must be a thankless task to be a contractor. You know, all yeah. of that work and effort and skill, you know, goes yeah. into a hole in the ground that no one knows about except from, you know, a dozen people, you know. Um, so in terms of what's coming next, who, who are the lucky clients that are on the waiting list? What have you got coming up that you want to kind of get your teeth into next well we're working on at the moment i will always feel as if we're working on better things than we've done if i ever stop mm-hmm. feeling that way i think it's time to time to stop yeah. you know i think we can get a lot better than we are is my drive and 
we're working on some great jobs at the moment that we're really happy with. You know, there's there's a house we just finished that we're waiting to photograph later in the summer that is that we're incredibly excited about, actually. Yeah. And then there'll be another I think in the next six months we'll probably finish another six or seven really nice projects that we're just working on just now. Ah, oh, busy. And then uh, well, we've got forty three active jobs, I think, at any yeah. given time. Plus the one. So what, a team of seven? Yeah, and one person's on maternity leave, so only six active. And uh, there's some growth plans coming, I think. I mean, we've grown a lot the last, you know, couple of years. Uh, I think the thing is that I really feel that we've went from being, you know, a kind of couple of architects to actually being a practice, you know, which Mm -hmm. which has been an interesting change for us, you know, and Mm. kind of how that's managed. And we're very lucky to have found, I'm not just saying this because they might hear this, we're very lucky to have found some amazing staff. I mean, honestly, like yeah. some of the people that we found, uh, my ambition is to be the, the least talented person in, in the company. Yeah. yeah, is always the intention. And we're well on the way to that with some of the people we've got, you know, that yeah. a, a couple of architects, you know, that are unbelievable, you know, that are yeah. very talented people, you know. And we've got an architectural technologist, you know, who's 40-odd years' experience on the job. Yeah. You know that just brings a different insight to things. You know, and yeah, we've been lucky recently in terms of how we've grown. That we're quite excited as to how things might go. I mean, we have a ceiling. I don't want to have a practice of you know, twenty people or something. I have a kind yeah. of uh, very much see as hopefully being single figures, maybe just breaking double figures. There's a kind of magic number where you can keep hold of a kind of studio field and by less names and yeah. yeah. You know, I mean I once I once worked for a company that had thirty people that had managed to retain that studio field. Mm. You know that but I think that was that's an amazing skill to have done that. I don't know how they managed it, you know. So mm. and it's uh yeah it's, it's exciting at the moment. I mean we've got a lot of new houses that we're doing. I mean jobs kind of from we're as far west as uh, Cork. Uh, we have a inquiry at the moment in Maine that we're looking at, kind of on the east coast uh, of America. Uh, yeah. Then we've got jobs in Somerset, Devon. Uh, we have a tentative inquiry from a job in Russia <laughs> that we're having a look uh, at. And then we're working up, up, yeah. to Shet- up to Shetland, which, although it's technically in Scotland, it is a trip you know, to yeah. go up to Shetland. You know, so. <laughs> But that, that's fine. I mean, we t- we try to do the right job anywhere, but not do the wrong job anywhere either. If we can, yeah, if we can manage it. Right. Well, Andrew, I'm going to ask you the three questions now that I ask all my guests at the end of interviews. Um, starting with, um, what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? Clutter. You know, I'm not I'm, I'm not a minimalist at all. But you know, we have a we have a young child, and we have a a puppy at the moment as well and it just feels like there's things everywhere we live in a, we live in a project we're doing up a, a long-term project to do up our house. right and i suppose not being able to go fast enough yeah you know, it's like the cobbler's children you know with the holes in their shoes you, uh, you do these jobs for everyone all the time and then you sometimes don't have the time to think about your own obviously yeah that is probably the element of how slowly we are progressing with our uh, refurbishment project is probably so you're kind of slightly point. nomadic within your own home oh, moving no. around as uh, they work on bits you know what's funny is that the kitchen dining and living are done aware mm-hmm. of that, I should say so we've been fine we almost took a foot off the gas and then mm. for the last few years we've chipped away at big chunks but not made a lot of progress 
And then now we're getting a new kitchen again before we finish the rest of it. Because we, we put a kitchen in that was kind of IKEA and homemade. We made the worktops, mm-hmm. the con- concrete worktops we made. And they, they worked okay. But mm-hmm. it's, uh, we're changing it. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. uh, and it's just slowly doing it. it it's, it's one of those things. It's partly budgetary, but it's also partly that we built the office. You know, the, we, we built a new studio for ourselves, which as an undertaking was like building a small to medium-sized house you know mm. that, that we hadn't planned to do actually before we mm. did it you know so that kind of diverted our attention a lot which politically is uh difficult at home because it took a lot of the attention away from doing up our own home yeah and then if you could describe one house that you've visited that has really inspired you and tell me why yeah, I saw that you had this in your questions. I was a bit worried about it. It's, uh, I went. I, I can't remember the name of the house, and it, it shamed me that. But Morris and Steedman, who were fantastic uh, Scottish mid-century architects and did wonderful houses, I, I visited a house in Edinburgh uh, years ago, fifteen years ago, that was on the market. We kind of pretended that we weren't kind of. Poor young <laughs> professional, <laughs> and we went to visit this house, and it was everything I could have hoped it would be. You know, it was kind of nicely considered. It was clean lines, it was flowing from inside to outside. There were some organic elements in it as well that were a little bit of a curveball. And it, I love their work. You know, I, I've always been a, mm-hmm. a, a big fan of Morris Stephen. And I, I, that house, the house I, I wish that I had visited, actually, which is if I could twist it a little bit, because this answers yeah. your second one as well. Is there's a Jornudson house? Uh, it's called West Common Way, and it was on the market years ago. I think the Modern House sold it, and I saw it and I thought, oh, I mean, you, I is that the one outside London? Yeah, it was recently. Concrete. No, no, it was recently renovated by. Oh, is it is it Chopin Dockra? Is it a company that, that, that they recently did a Smithson's house as well? It was right. a beautiful renovation. I mean, they're clearly a company that really know how to do work mm. that have quality, you know. And the, the I think is it in Hertfordshire, like, it, is, it is a wonderful house, you know. And mm. it's uh, if I could have any house for myself designed by someone yeah. else, it would it would be that Jornitsen house. Uh, if any designer, I know that's your third question, you know. But if there was any designer to design me a home, I know that he's he's passed away, but it would be Jornitsen. Well, yeah, no, you're or, allowed to bring people back from the dead. Or, so. uh, absolutely. Or, I mean, I've always been a huge Zumter fan. I always yeah. have been, you know, and I think that some of his, I've never been to Zumter building that I've been disappointed in, to be honest. Yeah, whether, that, yeah. whether, whether that's the term or, or whether it's the Serpentine Pavilion that he did, or, you mm-hmm. know, I, I'm always kind of amazed by uh, the kind of quality of the mm. buildings but for houses for me it's, it's your notes and we, we tend to draw a lot of mid-century references and your notes and some of his houses were just his house in Mallorca his own home just, yeah that was uh, um, Neil DeShaco uh, another architect on the podcast hmm. that was the house he picked that he'd visited I, I, I listened to that and I'm not surprised when I heard that I thought <laughs> I thought, should I mention it? And I thought, no, I won't. <laughs> I, I, I look like I'm uh, just copying. But it, it's a, I've never visited it. I would love to go. I just think yeah. it's, it's a wonderful house. Yeah. Okay. Well, brilliant. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, and th- yeah, thank you for giving me your time. And uh, it's great to find out more about the house and about you as well. Yeah, it, was, it was lovely to speak to you. Thanks. Thanks for the invite.
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Brown & Brown Architects and Lower Tullock Gru, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out my Instagram page to see the work of all of my guests. In the interview, Andrew selected Jorn Utzon's house in Mallorca as one that has really inspired him. In episode 17, my guest Neil DeShaco also selected the same house. To listen to my interview with Neil, visit the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com where we discuss his project Sunslice House. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode and thanks again for listening.